Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. We've come to part five in this seven-part series on what I believe is a very, very important topic. And as we've been seeing, if you've been following along with us, in the Old and New Testaments combined, there are probably at least 500 references to the glory of God or to God being glorified or God glorifying us. And this fifth part is particularly important because last time we got down to one of the most central verses in the New Testament, and it's really one of the centerpieces of Paul's whole explanation of the gospel, and that is Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he goes on to explain how we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. This scripture has captured my attention for some months now, and I never really gave it serious thought until recently, the words that Paul chose are very specific. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the context, it would seem perhaps to make more sense if he had said something like, all have sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God, or the standard of God, or the Ten Commandments, or the law, and in the context, he's talking about righteousness, being justified, having your sins forgiven, and being made righteous before God. Matter of fact, the very next part of the scripture in verse 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. But obviously, Paul chose this word glory for a reason. It's central to understanding the fall of man and the restoration of man through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we've seen in previous studies, and by the way, we won't go back and review all of that, but if you've missed any of them, the notes and the audio recordings for all of the previous sessions of this Bible study are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and you can follow the menus there and download any of the notes or the audio recordings. This scripture, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, the whole problem that we trace back to the Garden of Eden in Adam and Eve's fall is not just that they sinned, obviously they did, they sinned, but there was a falling that took place there. And Paul says, they fell short of the glory of God. And of course, as he develops this in Romans, 
when you come to Romans chapter 5, he goes a little deeper and he says, through Adam's one sin, through his one disobedience, sin passed on the whole human race and it brought death. And another way of expressing that, all mankind now has come short of the glory of God. And we've talked quite a bit now that the word sin in the New Testament literally means to miss the mark. The idea is you're aiming at a target, you're shooting for a goal, or you're trying to hit the bullseye on the target. But sin means we always fall short. We always miss the target. And with all of our best laid plans, all of our best efforts in life, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we're always coming short until we find this justification, this redemption, and this restoration that Paul is talking about that comes through faith in Christ. Just as man sinned, and falls short of the glory of God, so Christ wants to restore us so that we can hit the mark. And the mark, the bullseye, is the glory of God. And even as Christians, it's possible that we can still be missing the mark and think, oh, hallelujah, Jesus died on the cross for me, he forgave all of my sins, one day I'm going to heaven. That's all true. But you haven't gotten the whole picture yet. God wants to restore you. He wants to restore me to the fullness of his glory. And we've entitled this whole series, Show Us Your Glory, based on the prayer that Moses prayed in Exodus 33:18. Lord, show me now your glory. Well, Moses had some pretty amazing experiences with the Lord, but obviously he still wasn't satisfied. And I would maintain that you and I are never going to be satisfied until we see the glory of God. Nothing short of that will satisfy, and we're still missing the bullseye. We're still missing the mark. Interesting thing about Moses, of course, we, we saw in that whole story, God said, you can't look at my face now. If you look at my face, you will die. Interestingly, in the Gospels, Moses got to see the glory of God. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Elijah, and he saw him. He saw his face shining like the noonday sun. And God did ultimately answer his prayer. And perhaps Moses, as a prophet of God, was seeing far into the future that one day God would indeed show us his glory in the face of his own son, Jesus Christ. And one of the central verses of scripture that we are looking at in parts 4 and 5, indeed states that in 2 Corinthians 4, 
verses 4 to 6, Paul wrote, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. To show us his glory in the face of Christ. So, the purpose of the gospel, the whole purpose of the new covenant, is, of course, to forgive our sins, to justify us, to redeem us. But obviously, we still come short unless we allow God to fulfill this grand purpose of giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The gospel that Paul preached, he refers to it as the glorious gospel, or as we just read here, the gospel, gospel means good news, the good news of the glory of Christ. Well, what exactly is the good news of the glory of Christ? It's that God wants to give us that very glory to restore us to the very image of God and give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The Bible says that there's a day coming where the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. This is God's ultimate and grand purpose, to bring his people into a full knowledge of his glory. And, we finished last time looking at this, he wants to glorify us with that same glory. He wants to transform us from glory to glory into the very image and likeness of his Son. This was Jesus' prayer in John 17, just before he went to the cross. He prayed, Father, I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. He went on to pray, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me. So two different things he prays for, that they would be given glory and that they would see his glory. These are both aspects of the glorious gospel. And I believe very strongly in these last days, as things get darker and darker, we're seeing more and more terror, violence, Uh, suicide bombings, and the whole world is shaking and reeling. Stock markets are up and down. There's nothing stable in the world except for one thing. That's the church of Jesus Christ. And God has promised that as things get darker and darker around us, he's going to rise 
and shine, and the glory of the Lord is going to come upon his people. And if you're following in the outline notes, that brings us to the bottom of page 35, which is where we want to start off afresh tonight. This is a glorious gospel, but the end purpose of the glorious gospel is to have a glorious church. God is a glorious God. He's given us a glorious gospel, and it seems to make very logical sense that the byproduct of that should be something glorious. And indeed, he's coming for a glorious church. And let me read this scripture that I just referred to in closing out the last section from Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3, where God says, Arise, shine, your light has come, the glory of the Lord rises upon you, See, darkness covers the earth, thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me. So, we're going to look deeper into that aspect tonight, the glory that God has given to his people. Remember, Jesus' prayer in John 17 wasn't for just for the apostles. It was for all who would believe in him through their message. That includes you and me. So God intends for us to be glorious. He's given us his glory we're to be reflecting the Lord's glory. And as we saw in 2 Corinthians 3, we are to be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. I love that. Ever-increasing glory. And I, I remind the Lord often of these promises. Lord, I can't increase the glory in my life, but you said it's ever-increasing. So, let more glory come upon your church now. Let more glory come upon your people as we approach the end of all things. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Roman numeral three in part five, the glorious church. Now, it's interesting, in all four Gospels, you only find the word church twice. And it's found only in the Gospel of Matthew. This is one of the two references. The other is in Matthew 18. But this was, if I can put it simply, Jesus' stated mission. This is why he came. It wasn't just to wander around Galilee, give some nice parables and some nice sermons, and then die as some kind of a hero on the cross. There was a purpose behind his coming, his dying, and his resurrection. And very well-known scripture in Matthew 16, 18, very simply, this was his mission. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not 
overcome it. This is not man's church. These are not the churches we see on every corner of most of the city streets. They may be a part of it. They may not. The difference is this is going to be his work. I will build this church. And you and I should be very, very careful to make sure on a daily basis we are praying, Lord, I want to be a part of your church. So often, you know, the story goes something like this. I go out, I start my church, I call it the Church of Wayne, and then I ask God to bless the Church of Wayne, and then I invite you to come to the Church of Wayne. It's my church, it's all about me, it's about exalting myself and showing off all of my gifts and my talents. That, my friend, is not the church, and I'm afraid it has nothing to do with the church, because the church that Jesus Christ is building, it says in the book of Hebrews, it's made without human hands. Think about that. No evidence of man touching it. No fingerprints. Oh, look, Lord, here's my handprint. Look how much good work I did in building your church. No, 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 no. He will not share his glory with another. This is his glory. It's his church. He's building it. And that's why it's called a glorious church. And although only two references in the four Gospels to the church, numerous references later on in the book of Acts and, of course, the epistles from Paul and the other apostles. One of the best known is the next passage we want to read, Ephesians 5 verses 25 to 27. I'm reading it from the New King James Version, but I'll give you some of the different translations in a moment. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now let's pause. Paul is giving us some deeper insight into the purpose behind Christ's crucifixion, his death on the cross, his giving himself. He wasn't just dying for a cause. He was giving himself for her. Well, who's her? It's the church. So on the cross... What was really at the forefront of Christ's heart, mind, and purpose was, I'm doing this for the church. There wasn't any church yet, but he was doing it for the future church. And the word church throughout the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. It's an interesting word. It literally means called out, called out, that's all it means, ek means out of, klesis or klesia means calling, 
So these are going to be the called out ones. Those who have been called out of bondage, out of darkness, out of sin, out of the world, to unite together as this gathering, this body, this community that we call the church. That's what Christ loved. He loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, here it comes, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. He gave himself for a church, and he's sanctifying her, cleansing her, washing her, so that she can be presented to him, in the context, it's very obvious, as his wife, as his bride. Paul's talking about husbands and their relationship to their wives. He says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. In the context, just as Christ loved his wife, his bride, and gave himself for her. So all this effort, his sacrifice on Calvary, even now, the sanctifying, the cleansing, washing with his word, it's all with a goal. Remember, we talked about falling short of the the mark or the goal, missing the bullseye. What's the bullseye? It's to have a glorious church. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Christ comes now to restore us to glory and ultimately to form a glorious bride, a glorious church. How glorious will she be? No spot, no wrinkle, no blemish. That she should be holy. Pretty tall order. And obviously, he believes that that's possible. That's what he gave himself for, and that's what he's working for now in the church. Let me, let me say a couple of things here since we're talking about the church. The church, as I mentioned, refers to those called out. And from Acts chapter 2, where we first read about the birth of the church, what we see is a body, a community, a fellowship of people who were meeting together regularly and sharing everything they had together. They were eating together, they were praying together, they were worshiping together, they were ministering together, they did everything together as a body, because they understood the, the real meaning of a church. The church was called together for koinonia. We would normally translate that word, fellowship, but it means something more than that. It's a sharing, 
a sharing in all things, sharing their possessions, sharing their time, sharing everything in common to become one. The modern concept of the church seems to have changed a bit. Now I can do everything on my own and come to church once in a while when I feel like it. My friends, I'm sorry, that's missing the mark. That is not the purpose for the church. It's not so that I can do my own thing, have my own little thing going in my house, and basically I do whatever I feel like, and I'm not entering into this sharing with the body of Christ. Paul, I think, puts it better than anyone else in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 12. The church is a body. And we all know what a body is because we have one. And you can't pull your thumb off and leave it on the shelf and come back and get it in two weeks. Your body is united together. It's one unit. And every member is needed by every other member. They all minister to the various parts of the body. It's a beautiful picture of what God wants the church to become. And this idea of, well, you know, the church is gathering together for worship. The church is gathering together on the phone or the Internet for Bible study. The church is gathering together at Pastor Wayne's house for prayer. But, you know, I can do my own thing in my own living room, and I can seek the Lord on my own. Sure you can, but you're missing the church. The church is an, an organism. It's a living thing, united together, so that ultimately it can become this glorious bride. Jesus is coming soon. I am completely convinced of that. I see the things that are happening in the world. I have never witnessed anything like what I'm seeing in recent months. I know the clock is ticking. Jesus is at the door. He's coming soon. And here's the thing we all need to be aware of. He's not coming for five churches. He's not coming for 25 churches. He's not coming for 80,000 different denominations and sects and groups and this and that and the other. He's coming for one church. The question is, are you and I becoming a part of it? He's only coming for one. And the one church is where he's investing all of his energies, all of his resources now to cleanse her, sanctify her, and make her glorious. This expression that we just read here in Ephesians 5.27, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church. Other translations may read a little bit differently. The NIV has radiant, which is good. We talked about Glory being something radiant, the radiance of God. But this is actually from the same root word, which is translated glory throughout the New Testament. Remember, it's the word doxa. Doxa is the Greek word for glory. The word that Paul uses here is endoxos. 
Endoxos literally means in glory or endued with glory. So the the doxa, the glory of God, has become a part of her. She's glorious. She's in glory, splendid, noble, glorious, gorgeous, honorable are many of the meanings derived from it. In the Amplified Bible, it is translated in glorious splendor, that he might present her to himself a church in glorious splendor. As we mentioned, NIV, a radiant church, and the New American Standard translation, a church in all her glory, in all her glory. So God has glory, but part of the gospel now is to give that glory to the church, that she would be glorious, radiant, shining with the very glory of God. When you understand that this is God's purpose, it's not just some pipe dream, it's really his purpose, it changes the way you pray. It gives you a a boldness and an assurance that this is what God wants for the church. And we can begin to pray and intercede. God, make your church glorious. Remove the spots. Remove the wrinkles. Remove the blemishes. Make her holy. Get rid of the junk. Get rid of the garbage and the carnality and the worldliness and the things that don't reflect Christ. Make her radiant. Make the church glorious. That's the purpose of the gospel. Now, as I mentioned, in Acts chapter 2, is where generally most all Bible teachers and scholars agree the church was born. Obviously, when Jesus was still here on earth, it was a future thought, because he said, I will build my church, we read in Matthew 16. The church comes into being on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that is referred to in other parts of the New Testament as the Spirit of Glory. So, on the day of Pentecost, the baptism in the Holy Spirit takes place, and the 120 that are gathered there in the upper room, they are filled with glory. This is where the church begins with the baptism in glory, and God's glorious grace comes upon the church. Let's read about it. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, note those words, they were all together in one place. They weren't all at their own individual homes, praying and seeking the Lord. Nothing wrong with that again, but they understood they needed to be together because God told them to do that. And they're all together in one accord, in one place. (coughs) Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from the heaven 
and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw, stop, we've seen over and over again, when God's glory comes, people saw it. There was an appearance, often bright light, fire, smoke, a shining, a radiance. They, they saw the glory of God. Well, look what happens here. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. We looked at this in some detail a while back. I compared the glory of God to fire. The Bible says God is a consuming fire. And fire is a mysterious thing. Unless it has fuel, it goes out. You can't put it into a bottle and say, I'm going to keep this fire for next week. It, it's, it's a living thing. And it gives off light. It gives off heat. It gives off smoke. So there are evidences when there is fire. You feel it. You see it. You can even hear the crackling when it's burning up stuff. But nobody can quite define what it is nor can we define who God is. He's a mystery. But the Bible does say he is a consuming fire. And we see light. We see smoke, often associated with appearances and manifestations of the glory of God. Guess what? On the day of Pentecost, what are they seeing? Fire. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And by the end of Acts chapter 2, very clearly, we have a church. It mentions there that people were being added daily to the church. So the church that didn't exist before Acts 2 suddenly comes into being. And what do we have? A whole community of believers. They all believe in Christ. They're all filled with the same Holy Spirit. They're all praying together, worshiping together, rejoicing together, going from house to house, eating together, having fellowship together, sharing everything in common together. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe we could safely say they were filled with the glory of God. Because Peter, the chief spokesman on that day of Pentecost, later wrote about the Holy Spirit and refers to him as the Spirit of glory. Look in 1 Peter 4, verses 13 and 14. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Notice that. When his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The spirit of glory and of God 
rests on you. It had been resting on them since the day of Pentecost or since whenever they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this was God's response from heaven to Jesus' prayer. Father, give them the same glory that you gave me. Jesus spoke about a future experience in John chapter 7. He had not yet been glorified, and it said there, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to them. But he said to them, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his belly, out of his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. He was prophesying about a future experience that he called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Baptized in the fire of God. Baptized in the glory of God. Jesus referred to it as the baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire. Holy Spirit and fire. And so many times in the New Testament, it talks about God's glorious grace, His glorious riches, the riches of His glory, always in the context of the church. Particularly, back to Ephesians, remember we saw in chapter 5, where he refers to a glorious church. Well, let's back up a little bit and see some of the components that make up this glorious church. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm not going to read the whole passage, it's all good, but for the sake of time, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. What has he given us? His glorious grace. He doesn't just say his grace, his glorious grace. And again in verse 12, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And then in verse 14, referring to the, the seal, the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So, starting with the day of Pentecost, or beginning with the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of glory comes to reside in us. The glory of God comes to rest upon us. And it says in the book of Acts, great grace was upon them. Well, Paul uses a different word here. The glorious grace of God has been freely given to us in Christ. Why? Well, jumping again back to chapter 5, it's to produce a glorious church. Numerous times in the New Testament, Paul uses an expression, the riches of his glory, or another way of putting it, his glorious riches. It's the same thing, and you may find 
uh, either one, depending on your translation. Let's look at some of these um, places in the New Testament where it mentions this. Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. King James translates it the other way around, the riches of his glory. I like the Amplified. It says, out of the rich treasury of his glory. You know, if you can imagine uh, a wealthy king, he has this treasury with gold and silver and and jewels and all kinds of treasures locked up in his treasury for safekeeping. Well, God has a different kind of riches in his treasury. They're called glorious riches, or the rich treasury of his glory. In other words, everything inside that vault, that treasury, is the glory of God. So out of those riches of glory, God does things. He strengthens us. He changes us. He cleanses us. Look in Romans 9, verses 22 to 24. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? I really like this. In Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul also talks about how God has prepared us ahead of time for good works. He's prepared the works in advance for us to do. He's also prepared something else in advance. If you are one of the objects of his mercy, then he says he wants to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance, for what? For glory. I can't go into all the depths of this tonight, but God is a sovereign God. And Paul often touches on this in his writings. Um, He's a God of predestination. He's a God of purpose and destiny and plans. A lot of the things that God is working out in your life and mine today, he planned before the foundation of the world. I know it's hard for us to comprehend that, but Paul says maybe you came to Christ five years ago or 30 years ago, but ages ago, you were already prepared. 
He prepared you in advance to be an object of mercy. Otherwise, you wouldn't have come to Christ. And because you're an object of mercy, he now intends to make the riches of his glory known to you, known to me, and he prepared all this in advance for glory. Amazing. Amazing. We are objects of his mercy. We were once objects of his wrath, but because we have believed in Jesus Christ, God's wrath lifted off of us, and we're now objects of mercy. And his purpose is in uniting us together as one body, as a church, all those whom he's called out in advance to be his people, he's going to show them, reveal to them the riches of his glory on those whom he prepared in advance. And if you study these passages carefully, and especially going back to Ephesians 1, what Paul is saying there is the reason he saved you and the reason he saved me is that we might be trophies for his glory. That we would be for the praise of his glory. And if we're defeated and carnal and full of spots and wrinkles, we're not going to give him glory. What gives him glory, according to Ephesians 5, is a church without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. A holy church. That's a glorious church. And so he's given us glorious grace. He's given us the spirit of glory. He's given us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to change us into an overcoming church, a glorious bride prepared for his return. And all of this is done out of the treasury of his glory. Look in Philippians 4, verse 19. We quote this verse all the time, but I don't think we think enough about the second part of the verse. My God will meet all of your needs. Hallelujah. That's not all he says, though. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches. In other words, out of this treasury of glory is where all of your needs are going to be met. God is rich. God has a big treasury full of glory. And out of that treasury of glory, God will meet every need. Colossians 1. This is everywhere in Paul's writings. Colossians 1, verses 10 and 11. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. His glorious might, the glorious power of God, is what is going to strengthen us and give us endurance and patience in our trials 
A little later in Colossians 1, verse 27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, to make known, notice those words, to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. A lot of glory there. To make known the glorious riches, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the church is not just a bunch of people that get together on Sunday or Wednesday or Friday. The church is a mystery, and Paul goes into that later in Ephesians 5. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ and his relationship to the church. And if God has called you to be a part of his church, man, you are blessed. You are blessed. Don't miss out on that calling. Now, here's a caveat. Many are called, few are chosen. So, you may have gotten the invitation in the mail, but you need to RSVP. You need to respond to God's glorious grace. You need to respond to his calling, respond to the invitation, get baptized, get baptized in the Holy Spirit, start allowing him to wash you with the water of his word, get into fellowship, get into prayer, get into worship, learn the apostles' teachings, and begin to grow in this glorious grace as you prepare for that day when he will present her to himself a glorious church. Again, in Ephesians, a lot of these scriptures are found in Ephesians. Ephesians 3, a little further down, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power, remember that's glorious power, that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want to say something tonight about the church, and we're, we're probably going to have to close here before we finish this whole section. Talking again about the church. I, I hear this often, and I'm not being critical. Trust me, I'm not trying to criticize anybody, but I hear this kind of a buzzword often now. Well, Pastor, I can stay at home and pray and read my Bible and seek the Lord. Absolutely. We encourage everybody to do that as often as you can. You pray, you read your Bible, you, you seek the Lord. But... The Bible also says, don't forsake assembling yourselves together. Because it's in the assembly together that we experience the full glory, the full revelation of God's glory. The church 
is a very unique thing. And we don't go to church. We are the church, and the church goes to the building. Or the church comes to the living room. Or the church goes out into the forest. The church is the body of Christ. But it's in the church that God has chosen. This isn't my idea. It's not your idea. This is God's plan and purpose. God has chosen to manifest his maximum glory in the church. Not when you're alone in your living room. You may have a marvelous uh, time with the Lord. I certainly do, and I look forward to those times. I love to be alone with God. But God has chosen to manifest his maximum glory in the community. And we saw that over and over in the Old Testament in type and shadow with the Israelites. God showed his glory to the whole Israelite community. All they had to do was look up at the tabernacle, and there was the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. The glory of God was right there, visible for all of the community to see. They all saw his glory at Mount Sinai. So God has chosen to do very special things when his people gather together in unity as his body. I like this, Ephesians 3. To him be glory, where? In the church. In the church. To him be glory in the church. He's coming for a glorious church, and it's the church that maximizes God's glory. That's why you and I should take every opportunity to join ourselves with the church. Seek the Lord with the church. If the church is praying, get together with the church and pray. If the church is studying the Bible, get together with the church and study the Bible. If the church is going out and doing evangelistic work, join together with the church and do it. That doesn't mean you can't evangelize on your own, pray on your own, sing on your own, worship on your own. But there's a unique dynamic when two or three gather together. Jesus said, there I will manifest Two or three gather together in my name. You cannot get away from the importance of gathering. Gathering together to seek him, to worship him, and to bring glory to him. Now, I'll read two more scriptures and we're going to have to close here from 1 Corinthians. Remember all that we've studied about glory. It's something visible. It's a manifestation, a, a radiance of who God is. Now, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, God has filled the church with his glory, with his power, with his Holy Spirit. Therefore, there should be a radiance, a manifestation coming forth from the glorious church. That's what Paul talks about in these next two passages, both from 1 Corinthians. We'll start in chapter 2, 
verses 1 to 5. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Stop right there. I'm not trying to be critical, but most churches, oh, they would be thrilled if they had a pastor or a preacher who was eloquent, had superior wisdom, sounded like he graduated from Harvard or Yale or some uppity place, uses big, you know, $20,000 words, six-syllable words that nobody understands. Ooh, he really must know what he's talking about because we can't understand a thing he's saying. Paul says, sorry, got it all wrong. When I came, I didn't come with eloquence. He could have been eloquent. He was a highly educated man. Superior wisdom, he had plenty of wisdom. Sat at the feet of Gamaliel. But he didn't trust in any of that. He wasn't counting on his eloquence or his wisdom to do anything in the church. And if we're trusting in those things, trust me, we're going to frustrate and thwart the glory of God. Verse 4 again, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration. That word means exactly what it says. If you look it up in the Greek, it's something visible, something that can be seen. It's an exhibit, something being put on display for everyone to see. He didn't come with wise words, fancy eloquence, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. You see, here's the problem. If we try to build the church on eloquence and fancy speeches and Harvard, you know, vocabulary, well, we might build something. But what we'll end up with is a group of people who are trusting in that man and his eloquence and his fancy speaking. Their faith will rest on men's wisdom, not on God's power. Paul, apparently, whenever he visited these churches, he came demonstrating, manifesting the glory of God. It was something tangible with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. You know, these kind of scriptures should really stir us to pray. Pray for our churches. Pray for our leaders. Pray that we can get out of the way so God's Spirit can manifest the power and the glory of God. That our churches would not be trusting in men, but in the power of God. Okay, Next passage, and here's where we'll have to stop for tonight. 1 Corinthians 14. 
verses 23 to 25. So if the whole church comes together, if you're looking at the outline notes, I put all of that in bold. Notice what it just said. The whole church did what? They came together. You didn't have 10 or 15 or 20 that decided to stay home this week and some others uh, went to the beach and some others decided, um, I don't like going to church today. I'm just going to stay home and pray. I can seek the Lord in my own bedroom. Okay, great. But in Paul's day, the whole church came together. And if the whole church comes together and everyone, what's everyone mean? It means everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand, by the way, that shoots a pretty big hole in this whole argument that, well, not everybody's supposed to speak in tongues. Everyone did in Paul's church. Everyone did. Everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand, or some unbelievers, only the unbelievers didn't, come in, will they not say you are out of your mind? Of course they will. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody, what's everybody mean? Everybody is prophesying. Why? The church is made up of all those who have been filled with God's Holy Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the glory of God. They all spoke in tongues. They all prophesied. So, if an unbeliever comes in to the gathering, while everyone is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, man, this is a cool church. You guys have a cool pastor. I like the singing today. Good message. No? We're happy when we hear all those things, but we're missing the mark. When a sinner comes into our gathering, this is what they should be saying. God is really among you. God is here. God is manifesting himself here. When the whole church comes together, God is here among you. Man, I don't want to miss church if God is going to be there. And as we stated, that is the purpose for the church. When the church comes together, God desires to manifest his glory. And I pray all the time now, Lord, we don't want a show. We want you to show up. We're not trying to put on some kind of a show on Sundays or Wednesdays or Fridays or whenever. God, would you please show up? And if there are sinners and unbelievers there, they're going to know that God is here. So, in conclusion for tonight, the purpose of the gospel is to restore us to the glory of God. Man fell from the glory of God in the Garden of Eden. Jesus restores us to the glory of God. God, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, responded to Christ's stated mission 
which was to build his church. That actual building began on the day of Pentecost. Jesus said, I must go back to my Father so the Comforter can come. The Holy Spirit was poured out. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with fire, filled with the glory of God. They were united together as one community, one body, and they began to come together. They began to gather together in prayer, in worship, in seeking the Lord. And God began to manifest himself through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Key word there, they're referred to as manifestations of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. Same word, a demonstration, a manifestation of God's wisdom, God's power, God's glory. The gifts have been given to the church. Everyone speaks in tongues. Everyone prophesies. Everyone manifests the glory of God. And so when you gather together 10, 20, 100, 5,000 of those believers, there's a multiplying effect. And the glory of God is seen and manifested in the church. Jesus is coming soon. He's coming not for a spotted, wrinkled, defiled, unclean, worldly-sounding and worldly-looking church. He's coming for a glorious church without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, washed in the water of his word, filled with his glorious grace, going from glory to glory, increasing in glory, as she is being transformed into his very image and likeness. What a blessed people we are that he's called us, he's invited us to be a part of this group, the bride, the church, the glorious church. May God finish the good work that he started in each one of us. And Paul gives us that assurance in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will complete it for the day of Christ. Let's prepare ourselves. Let's trust him. Let's understand Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for this glorious gospel. It's almost too good to be true. It's almost too good to believe that you would want to take raw sinners, fallen from your grace, fallen from your righteousness, fallen from your glory, forgive us, change us, and make us glorious. But God, this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came to totally transform us, to make us new creations in Christ, and to restore that image that was marred through sin and rebellion and disobedience. And now, God, you're calling us out, out of sin, out of darkness, out of the world, to come together as one body, one community, the church, the bride of Christ. 
God, I pray in these last days that you would make your church glorious. Wash us, cleanse us, sanctify us, fill us with the glorious riches of your power. Strengthen us in the inner man with power and might out of your treasury of glory that we might be for the praise of the glory of your grace. God, we commit our lives into your hands. Finish the work you started in each one of us. I pray that you would keep each one of us until that day. Make us all ready for that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.